Part 1 of There is a Tavern in the Town from Here Are Ladies by James Stevens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. There is a Tavern in the Town. 1. The old gentleman entered and was about to sit down when a button became detached from some portion of his raiment and rolled upon the floor. He picked the button up and observed that he would keep it for his housekeeper to sew on, and while speaking on the strangeness of housekeeping and buttons, he came slowly to the subject of matrimony. Like so many other customs, said he, marriage is not native to the human race, nor is it altogether peculiar to it. As far as I am aware, no person was ever born married, and in extreme youth bachelors and spinsters are so common as to call for no remark. Nature strives, not for duality as in the case of the Siamese twins, but for individuality. We are all born strongly separated, and I am often inclined to fancy that this ceremony of joining appears very like flying in the face of providence. I have also thought, on the other hand, that the segregation of humanity into male and female is not an economic practice, but I fear the foundation of the sex habit is by this time so deeply trenched in our natures as to be practically ineradicable. Throughout nature, the male and female habit is usual. All beasts are born of one or the other gender and this is also the case in the vegetable kingdom, but I am not aware that the ridiculous and wasteful preparations with which we encumber matrimony obtain also among plants and animals. Certainly among some animals courtship as we understand it is practised. Wolves, for instance, are an extraordinarily acute people who make good husbands and fathers, and in these relations they display a tenderness and courtesy which one only acquainted with their out-of-door manners would scarcely credit them with. Their courtship is conducted under circumstances of extraordinary rigour. A he-wolf, who becomes enamoured of a female from another tribe, is forced, in attempting to wed her, to set his life upon the venture, and disdaining all the fury of her numerous relatives, he must forcibly detach her from her family, kill or maim all her other suitors, sustain in a wounded and desperate condition a prolonged chase over the snow-clad Russian steppes, and ultimately consummate his nuptials, if he can, with as many limbs as his lady's family have failed to collect off him. This is a courtship admirably fitted to evolve a hardy and spartan race, strong in the virtues of reliance and self-control. Spiders, on the other hand, are a people whom I despise on several counts, but must admire on others. They conduct their love affairs in an even more tragic style. In every event matrimony is a tragedy, but in the case of spiders it is a catastrophe. Spiders are a very sour and pessimistic people who live in walls corners of hotel bedrooms, and holes, generally, in which places they weave very delicate webs, and sit for a long period, 
in a state of philosophic ecstasy contemplating the infinite their principal pastimes are killing flies and committing suicide both of which games should be encouraged like so many other unhappy creatures they are born with a gender from which there is no escape the male spider is very much smaller than the female and he does not care greatly for his life when he does not desire to live any longer he commits matrimony or suicide he weds a large and fierce wife who when in expectation of progeny kills him and being a thoroughgoing person as all females are she also eats him possibly at his own request and thus she relieves her husband of the tedium of existence and herself of the necessity for seeking immediate victual i do not know whether male spiders are very plentiful or extremely scarce but i cite this as an example of the extravagance and economy of the female gender of the courting habits of fish i have scanty knowledge fish are very ugly dirty creatures who appear to live entirely in water and they have been known to follow a ship for miles in the disgusting hope of garbage being thrown to them by the steward their chief pastime is weighing each other for which purpose they are liberally provided with scales they can be captured by nets or rods and lines or when they are cockles they can be captured by the human hand but in this latter case they cannot be tamed having very little intelligence the cockle has no scale and feels the deprivation keenly hiding himself deep in the sea and seldom venturing forth except at night-time he is composed of two shells and a soft piece is chiefly useful for poisoning children and is found at sandymount a place where nobody but a cockle would live other fish may be generally described as crabs pinkeens red herrings and whales how these conduct their matrimonial adventures i do not know the statement that whales are fond of pinkeens is true only in a food sense for these races have never been observed to intermarry a great many creatures capture or captivate their mates by singing these are usually but not always birds and include wily wagtails larks canary birds and the crested earwig poets music-hall comedians and cats may also be included in this category dogs are imperative and dashing wooers but they seldom sing peacocks expand their tails before the astonished gaze of their brides showing how the female sex is overborne by minor unimportant advantages frogs i believe make love in the dark which is a wise thing for them to do they are very witty folk but confirmed sentimentalists grocers assistants attract their males by exposing very tall collars and brown boots drapers assistants follow suit with the comely addition of green socks and an umbrella they are never known to fail some creatures do not marry at all at a certain period they break in two halves and each half fully equipped for existence waggles away from the other 
they are the only perfectly happy folk of whom I am aware. For myself, I was born single, and I will remain so. I will never be a slave to the disgusting habit of matrimony. Having said this, with great firmness, the old gentleman shed two more buttons from his waistcoat, and, after sticking three nails and a piece of twine through his garments, he departed very happily. The gentleman in waiting sneezed three times in a loud voice, and gave a war-whoop, but I took no notice of these impertinences. 2. I had not seen the old gentleman for a long time, and when he entered with one foot in a boot and the other in a carpet slipper I was overjoyed. When the bubbling tankard which I had ordered was placed before him he seized my two hands, wrung them heartily, and dashed into the following subject. It must be remembered, said he, that dancing is not an art but a pastime, and should, therefore, be freed from the two burdensome regulations wherewith an art is encumbered. An art is a highly specialised matter, hedged in on every side by intellectual policemen. A pastime is not specialised, and never takes place in the presence of policemen, who are well known to be the sworn enemies of gaiety. For example, theology is an art, but religion is a pastime. We learn the collects only under compulsion, but we sing anthems because it is pleasant to do so. Thus, eating oysters is an art, by dint of the elaborate ceremonial including shell openers, lemons, waiters, and pepper, which must be grouped around your oyster before you can conveniently swallow him, but eating nuts or blackberries or a privily acquired turnip, these are pastimes. The practice of dancing is of an undoubted antiquity. History teems with reference to this custom, but it is difficult to discover what nationality or what era first witnessed its evolution. I myself believe that the first dance was performed by a domestic hen who found an ostrich's egg and bounded before Providence in gratitude for something worthy of being sat upon. In all places and in all ages, dancing has been utilised as a first aid to language. The function of language is intellectual, that of dancing is emotional. It is scarcely possible to say anything of an emotional nature in words without adventuring into depths or bogs of sentimentality, from which one can only emerge greasy with dishonour. When we are happy, we cannot say so with any degree of intelligibility. In such a context, the spoken word is miserably inadequate, and must be supplemented by some bodily antic. If we are merry, we must skip to be understood. If we are happy, we must dance. If we are wildly and ecstatically joyous, then we will become creators, and some new and beneficent dance movements will be added to the repertory of our neighbourhood. Children will dance upon the slightest provocation, so also do lambs and goats. But policemen and pecans and advertisement agents and fish do not dance at all, and this is because they have hard hearts. Worms and members of Parliament, between whom, in addition to their high general culture, there is a singular and subtle correspondence, do not dance, because the inelastic quality of their environment forbids anything in the nature of freedom. Frogs, dogs, and very young mountains do dance. A frog is a most estimable person. 
He has a cold body but a warm heart, and a countenance of almost parental benevolence, and the joy of life moves him to an almost ceaseless activity. I can never observe a frog on a journey without fancying that his gusto for travel is directed by a philanthropic impulse towards the bedside of a sick friend, or a meeting to discuss the housing of the working classes. He has danced all the way too, he will dance all the way from his objective, but the spectacle of many men dancing is provocative of pain. To them dancing is a duty, and a melancholy one. If one danced to celebrate a toothache, one might take lessons from them. They stand in the happy circle, their features are composed to an iron gravity, their hands are as rigid as those of a graven image, and then, the final moment having arrived, they agitate their legs with a cold fury which is distinctly unpleasant. Having finished, they dance their partners from their sides, and retire to blush and curse in a corner. When a man dances, he should laugh and crow and snap his fingers and make faces, otherwise he is not dancing at all, he is taking exercise. No person should be allowed to dance without first swearing that he feels only six years of age. People who admit to feeling more than ten years old should be sent to hospital, and anyone proved guilty of fourteen years of age should be lodged in jail without the option. It is peculiar how often opposite emotions may meet on a common plane of expression. The extremes of love and hate strive to get equally close to kiss or to bite the object of their regard. Work and play may be equally strenuous and equally enthralling. Hunger and satiety unite in a common boredom. A happy person will dance from sheer delight, and the man in whom a pin has been secreted can only by dancing express the exquisite sensibility of his cuticle. Whatever one does or refrains from doing, one must be tired by bedtime. It is a law but one may be pleasantly tired. I will suspect the morrows of a man who cannot dance. I will look curiously into his sugar or statecraft. I will impeach his candour or reticence and sneer at his method of lighting a fire, unless he can frolic when he goes out for a walk with a dog. That is the beginning of dancing. The end of it is the beginning of a world. A young dog is a piece of early morning disguised in an earthly fowl, and the man who can resist his contagion is a sour, dour, miserable mistake, without bravery, without virtue, without music, with a cranky body and a shriveled soul, and with eyes incapable of seeing the sunlight. I have often taught that dogs are a very superior race of people. They are certainly more highly organized on the affectional plane than man. A dog will love you just for the fun of it, and that is virtue. Pat a dog on the head, and he will dance around you in an ecstasy of good fellowship. Let us, at least, be the equal of these sagacities. Let us put away our false intellectual pride. Let us learn to be unconscious. The average man trembles into a dance, imagining that all eyes are rayed upon him, wonderingly or admiringly, whereas, in truth, he will only be looked at if he dances very well or very badly. 
both of these extremities of perfection ought to be avoided. We should exercise our very bad or very good qualities in solitude, lest average people be saddened by their disabilities in either direction. Let your curses be as private as your prayers, for both are purgative operations. In public, we must conform to the standard. In private only may we do our best or our worst. Acting so, we will be freed from false pride and cowardly self-consciousness. Let us be brave. Let us caress the waists of our neighbours without fear. Let everybody's chin be our toy. Let us pat one another on the hats as we pass in the melancholy streets. Thus only shall we learn to be gay and careless, who for so long have been miserable and suspicious. We will be fearless and companionable, who have been so timid and solitary. A new, a better, a real police force will arrest people who don't dance as they travel to and from their labour. The world will be happy at last, and civilization will begin to be possible. Here, in an ecstasy of good fellowship, the old gentleman seized his pewter with his left hand and my glass with his right hand, and he emptied them both before recognising his mistake. I had, however, run out of tobacco, whereupon he became very angry and refused to bid me good night. 3. The old gentleman condescended to accept the last cigar which I had, and, having lit it with my only match, he earnestly advised me never to smoke to excess, because this indulgence brought spots before the eyes, deteriorated the moral character, and was, moreover, exceedingly expensive. On the subject of smoking and tobacco he spoke as follows. I have observed that people who do not smoke are usually of a sour and unsociable disposition. All red-haired people smoke naturally, and they almost invariably use cut-plug. Very dark-haired men smoke twist, and their natural strength and virtue is such that in the intervals of smoking they also chew tobacco. Fair-haired men generally smoke cigarettes, they do this not for the purpose of enjoyment, but purely in imitation of their betters. However, in later life, when they become bald, as they invariably do, they also become regenerate and smoke pigtail. Men with mouse-coloured hair do not smoke at all. They collect postage stamps and seashells, and are usually to be found sitting around a fire with other girls, eating chocolates and seeking for replies to such questions as, When is a door not a door? and Why does a chicken cross a road? They are miserable creatures, whom I will not further mention. The usage of tobacco, or some smokable substitute, is as old as primitive man. Almost all nations of the earth are adepts at this particular habit. It is, of course, an acquired taste, as also are washing and tomatoes. We are born with appetites which are static and unchangeable, but we are also born with a yearning for pleasure, which is almost as positive as an appetite, and only needs cultivation to become equally imperative. Doubtless, a traveller from some distant planet who knew nothing of tobacco would be astonished by the spectacle of a man exhaling smoke from his lips with splendid unconcern, and our traveller's conjectures as to the origin of the smoke and the immunity of the smoker would be highly amusing and instructive. I am awfully surprised on reflecting that our immediate ancestors were debarred from this pleasant indulgence, and I have wondered how they made the evenings pass. The lack of tobacco and pockets in their clothes, 
both of which are great civilising agents, may have been responsible for the wars, harryings, kidnappings and cattle raids, which, alternating with rigorous and austere religious ceremonial, formed the bulk of their pleasures. Nowadays we leave these violent entertainments to children and the semi-literate and take our pleasures more composedly. A man who can put his hands in his pockets will seldom remove them for the purpose of slaying someone whose only fault is that he was born in the county Sligo. A man with a pipe in his teeth will be too much at peace with society to endanger its existence. If the blessings of tobacco should be extended to the remainder of the vertebrates, as why should it not, I am sure that lions, elephants, and wild boars would avail themselves of it. So also would kangaroos, a beautiful and agile race living in Polynesia or thereabouts. There are beautiful hoppers and collect large quantities of this plant, in which direction they are especially well equipped, each having a pouch in her stomach in which to carry tobacco and hops, but wherein they now ignorantly secrete their young. Serpents would smoke a pipe with considerable elegance and might become more benevolent in consequence. Frogs would smoke, but I fancy they would expectorate too elaborately to be neighbourly. Fish, however, would not smoke at all. They are a cowardly and corrupt people living in water, which is a singular thing to do. Neither would many birds smoke. They have neither the stamina nor the teeth. But I am certain that crows and jackdaws would chew tobacco eagerly and with true relish. A large proportion of the insecta are too light-minded and frivolous to care for smoking. Beetles, however, a very reserved and dignified race, would smoke cigars, and so would cockroaches, a rather saturnine and cynical people, but no others. As for women, I am astonished they have not smoked by mere contagion long ago. If they did, they would certainly grow more kind-hearted and manly, and I am sure that a deputation of ladies with pipes in their mouths and hands in their pockets would only have to demand the franchise from an astounded ministry to obtain it. Members of Parliament are, I believe, either a separate creation or a composite of the parrot and the magpie. They have not yet discovered their particular function in nature, but have observed them with some particularity. They wear top hats and are constantly making speeches, both of which are easy things to do and quite pleasant minor accomplishments. So far as I can gather, their chief use has been to pass something called a budget. From the fact that this budget contains a disgraceful imposition on tobacco, I must take it that members of Parliament are among the lower animals who do not smoke. They are also uninteresting in other ways. Having said this, my old friend bowed to me and departed genially, with my cigar-case in his pocket. The shirt-sleeved Adonis behind the counter wagged his head solemnly at a fly, and then clouted it with a dishcloth. End of Part 1 of There is a Tavern in the Town by James Stevenson